I, uh, I get the tremendous privilege, and I mean that genuinely. I don't say that in a sycophantic way. I, I, I was just, I was with the Lord yesterday, just thinking about what I'm teaching, and I was just like, Lord, I am so happy. I, I genuinely love the whole process of teaching. I love the preparation. I love the processing. I love the editing. I was, I was with the Lord yesterday and he was like, you know you're never going to get through what you've prepared. I'm like, I know, but I don't want to cut any of it out. And he's like, no, it'll be fine. Cut this out. So I love that whole journey. And I love that I've got two weeks with you. I'm, I'm here. Uh, I'm here all this week. Tip your waiters. Uh, I'm here this Sunday. Then I'm here next Sunday. And for me as a teacher, I love having an extended period of time to teach. And especially the topic I've picked. It's one of my absolute favorite topics to teach on. It's something I'm so passionate about, so committed uh, to just see God bring the full potential of this particular topic into all of our lives. Uh, He's fully optimistic about it. I'm fully optimistic about it. And I have great excitement to introduce the topic that I'm going to be talking about for two weeks with this short little video. So watch this and then I'll be back say to me they say jay john you know what what do you do it's always very difficult to know what to say because if i say to you that i'm a reverend which i am that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what i might be so i like to be a little bit creative in telling people what i do i sat next to this lady on an airplane at heathrow airport and i said hello and she said well hello and i said where are you going and she says I'm going to Singapore then she said to me where are you going I said I'm going to Australia I said what do you do so she told me then she said what do you do and I said well (laughs) I work for a global enterprise she said do you I said yes I do I said we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world she said I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. She went, wow! And it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? I said, it's called the church. So that's what we're going to spend the next two Sundays on. We're going to be super meta. We're going to be in church talking about church. And uh, as I was preparing this week, I came across this, this quote. I don't know what to think about the quote. I think it's very clever. I can't work out if it's accurate or cynical or, or good critical thinking. Let me share it with you. It's this, this quote here. It says, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Now, lest you think that this was a tweet 
from a disenfranchised millennial who's mad at the church (laughs) for being an institution, it might surprise you to learn that it's a quote from Richard Halverson. I don't know who he was either, so (laughs) I had to look him up, okay? Richard helped start and lead, excuse me, the National Prayer Breakfast in 1956. He was a pastor of the same church for 23 years. And then he had this kind of side job where he was the chaplain of the United States Senate for 13 years. He was on the board of World Vision for 27 years and served as their chairman for 17 years. So, you know, he wasn't an armchair quarterback, so to speak. He spent a lot of time on the field. And yes, that was a sports analogy. So get your household in order because Christ is returning soon. Okay? What I want to do this week, and God willing next week, is to talk about the church. Now, the problem with this, before we can even get started, is when we talk about the church, we have an identity crisis. Because depending on your background, depending on whether you went to church, uh, you know, when you were growing up, depending on what your church was like. For example, I went to church my whole life where there was about 30 people. We were basically a glorified house church. We didn't meet in a house, we had a, a building. But my experience of church was there was lots of families with kids my age. We all ate in each other's homes. We all grew up. That was my version of church, about 30 people. My sister, who grew up in the same church, she now attends a church with 26,000 members. So when she would talk on the phone to my mother, my mother's experience of church and my sister's experience of church, wildly different. And yet it's called church. I grew up, uh, my next door neighbor was a Roman Catholic. My neighbor across the street was a Baptist and we were, I'm not sure what we were. I think based on having lived here for 10 years, I think we were the offspring of Southern Baptist and Church of Christ. That's where I went to. So all three of us went to church on a Sunday but had completely different experiences. So my question to you this morning is, when I talk about church, what pops into your mind? Is it arches and tall ceilings? By the way, these are renders of phase two of our building project. I think you'll agree (laughs) would fit our cultural feel really, really well. Or is it stained glass windows? Or is it the traditional view of lots and lots of rows of pews? Or perhaps smoke machines and lights and electric musics? What, What you think about when you think about church. Now that's our starting issue. Church means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I'd like to suggest that rather than dabbling in opinion, we go straight to the source of the church itself, Christ Jesus. A number of years ago, I did a Bible study at Emine. It was one of my favorite Bible studies I've ever done because it was one of those ones where I didn't know where I was going and I, I ended up somewhere great. And I don't, I don't have time to go through it with you. I would love to. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the summary of some of the verses that we looked at regarding the church. Scripture teaches us that the church is built by Jesus. Not just built, past tense, but he's presently building it. I will build my church, he says, and the gates of Hades will not stand. 
AD 96 is when the book of Revelation was written. And in that, Jesus himself writes letters to seven churches to tell them, hey, this is how you're doing. This is where you could improve. He's still building the church. That's an encouragement to us because how many of you, if you're honest, you recognize there's issues with the church at large? Yeah? Well, it's okay. He's still working on them. It's just the building material that the Lord likes to use are people. And we're frail. We're subject to crisis and temptation. But rest assured, he's still building the church. Not only did he build the church, and not only is he building the church, he paid for the church with a currency we don't know. He paid for it with his life, with his blood. Acts tells us that the reason the church exists is that the Lord himself adds people to the church. You keep reading there, you see in 1 Timothy, the church is referred to as the household of God or the pillar and foundation of truth. We read in Ephesians that the church is cared for and fed by Jesus. One of my favorites is this one where it's used by God. The church is used by God to display the manifold versions of his wisdom. I'm not making this up. To the unseen rulers of the spiritual realm. Puts a spin on what you're doing this morning, huh? You can just imagine you're writing your tweet for the day. You're just like, um, off to be used by God to display the manifold wisdom to the unseen rulers of the spiritual realms. And then maybe brunch. Hashtag life goals. Okay? It's amazing. We just think we're here out of habit. But no, we're part of God's eternal plan to do that. Now, I want to pivot slightly. I want to jump into Ephesians. We're just going to stop there just to kind of set some context for where we're going to go. But, uh, sorry, I'm not going to read in Ephesians. I'm going to read from Acts. And what happens is Paul, it says, asks for the leaders of the churches in Ephesus. Now, for the context here, Paul spent about three years just raising up leaders. And he knows this is the last day he's ever going to see them. And so he's wanting, as this kind of master chief builder, to impart wisdom to these leaders he's raised up. And so he gathers them. And I'll be honest, it's a bit of a weird like, hey guys, thanks so much. I'm out of here. Listen to what he says. He says this. Again, remember, Paul is a genius. He's choosing his words really carefully. These are the last words of the leaders he's painstakingly built. He says this. I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Like lighten up, Paul. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And then he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says to his leaders, watch yourself. And in doing so, watch the people that you lead. If that was ever a word for all of us today. But then he pivots It's in the Bible, so I'm just reading it out loud, okay? He says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. How's that for a pep rally? Here's all my leaders. Hey guys, you're never going to see me again. And also, some of you sitting here are going to rise up. You're going to distort the truth and you're going to lead people away from the church to follow you. 
That's what he says. That's what he wants them to know. And he says this, remember the first three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This was not the first time they'd heard this. Paul is this brilliant architect of the church is saying, hey, this is what you're up against. Back then, as today, there were people from inside the church who stood up, twisted the truth, and the sole reason was to draw people away from the church. So today, as back then, it's happening. And so my encouragement to you, said with a smile, is be on your guard. Now, I got to thinking, it's important to think while reading the Bible, okay? <laughs> Derek Prince, one of my favorite Bible teachers, said, the Word of God is the only book that when you read it, it reads you. So pay attention when you're reading it. What are the questions that are coming up? The question that came up for me while reading that passage is, how does that happen? How do you have people that you've spent years together in church, maybe they're your leaders, maybe they're your colleagues, only for them to decide one day, ah, oh, today seems like a great day for me to distort the truth and lead people away from the church to follow me. Now I'm being flippant because it's kind of agonizing to think about that. Because when I think about these things, it's not a mere intellectual experiment. I want to know so I don't become one of them. Let me say that again. I'm not being fraudulent. I'm saying I'm reading that and I'm thinking these were people hand-picked and hand-trained by Paul. And he was like, yeah, some of you, you're going to desert the faith and you're going to take people with you. Let's leave that thought there just for a moment, and let's pick up another one. As much as I love the church, and I really do, not everyone feels the same way as me. One of the trends I've noticed in the last few years is that it's become incredibly popular for Christians to stop going to church. I want you to ponder that for a moment. If, as Acts tells us, it's the Lord that adds you to the church, who might be the person most interested in removing you from the church? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not your own postmodern enlightenism that's led you there. So why is that and are they intertwined? I think it's incredibly dangerous to decide to remove yourself from a place that Jesus chose to put you in. Especially if that place is a place that Jesus has paid for, has built, is building, is his household, is a place known as the pillar and foundation of truth, is a place where he plans on caring for you and feeding you, and is part of his, I don't know, his eternal plan maybe? <laughs> it sounds like the very definition of insanity, and yet all the time, not all the time, but increasingly, I'm hearing Christians who follow Christ who want to leave the church. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I love Jesus, but it's the church I don't like. Be very careful with statements like that because the church is very precious to Jesus. She's the bride of Christ. 
Imagine coming for dinner at my house and you leave, you're on your way home, you speak to your friends, you're like, you know, I really like Alan. He's funny, he's charming, so humble. It's his wife I don't like. She's a nightmare, right? And then imagine telling me the next time you see me, you're like, hey, you know, I really want to connect with you, but it is, ah. Like, you know, I thought Canadians were nice, but she's horrible. What sort of relationship do you think we're going to have if you're opposed to the one I love? It gets way worse, so hold your applause, okay? I appreciate your enthusiasm, but you're setting yourself up horribly, so. Simmer down there. All of that is the hors d'oeuvres. I want to get to the main course. We're, we're going to stay for a little bit in the book of Hebrews. In order for us to get the most out of the book of Hebrews, I need to tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews and especially chapter 10 where we're going. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so you'll hear me refer to it as the author of the book of Hebrews. Apologies for being a bit clumsy there. But the reason the book of Hebrews was written was we think the audience were first generation Jewish believers. That is... People who were Jews, who were entrenched in uh, and very familiar with the Old Covenant, who've heard the gospel and have got saved. And in that environment, in that culture, they're being persecuted for their faith. So it's like a beginner's handbook to, uh, you know, your relationship with God 2.0. Everything just got better. And he's using the, the... the knowledge that they're familiar with about the old covenant and about uh, sacrifices and the law and brilliantly, really brilliantly comparing and contrasting the old covenant and revealing how superlative this new covenant is using language, ideology, pictures, imagery with which they're super familiar. Now, some of that gets lost on us because we're modern readers I'm imagining the vast majority of us are Gentiles, so we're not entrenched in um, Jewish culture. Nevertheless, let's jump in. So it's written for that, and when we get to Hebrews 10, the author of the book of Hebrews has reached a pinnacle of persuasion. If you read the context, the author has spent a long time reminding the Jewish believers of the old way of doing things. That is a need for a blood sacrifice. This is everything Pastor Jeff's been teaching us. The need for a blood sacrifice and reminding them of the temple and specifically the most holy place, the holy of holies in the temple. Now again, we're Gentiles. If we remember our flannel graph from Sunday school, where are my flannel graph people at? You'll remember that the Holy of Holies was the most special place of the tabernacle, could only be entered one time a year by one person, the great high priest. Okay, so the the Jewish audience here are super familiar with this. Now the author here in Hebrews 10 has just made the point and is about to reinforce the point that now with Jesus' death, everybody who believes in Jesus can enter the very presence of God that was previously reserved for the great high priest. You with me? Right, so your reaction is like, yeah. They would be like, what, are you insane? That's unbelievable, you sure that's right? Let me check your math, right? It was mind blowing for them. And again, the significance of that is mostly lost on us. I don't mean we can't wrap our heads around it intellectually, but the significance and the contrast and the impact would have been massive for the original readers of this letter. Now, having brought his readers 
to that point that, hey, now that Jesus is our one sacrifice, we can access the Holy of Holies. He says this in verse 19. And in reading this in verse 19, what he's doing is he's actually setting up the readers of this for five major things out of this revelation. So let me read it to you and then we'll go through each of the five revelations. So this is Hebrews 10 verse 19. Lord, as we read this, would you bless us? Would you feed us thoroughly? And uh, we just love your word. Give us ears to ear, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. We're like, curtains? What are you talking about? Is this restoration hardware? They were super familiar with what the curtains were, okay? So they've got it. They're like, this is amazing. It's a huge deal and his audience knew that. But what the author is about to do is say, because there's a huge deal, there's now five things, a mix of benefits and responsibilities that are available to us because of this big deal. Are you all still with me? Yes. Okay. Verse 21 is where we find our first point. The author continues and says, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God. Basically, just right off the bat, don't take it for granted what Jesus has done for you. You've been given this gift. You've only heard rumors of what the presence of God is like. Now we can all go in and experience it. Point number two is directly feeding off of point number one. So in verse 22, it says, go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. An image they were so familiar with of the, the blood being sprinkled against the altar and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Again, for first generation Christian Jews, they're like, this is unbelievable because they knew that the sacrifice only cleansed them until the next sacrifice was offered. And the author here is like, no, with Jesus, one sacrifice for all time. It's incredible. Enjoy this life that you have. Enjoy this clean conscience and this right standing with God. That's your inheritance. Do you see the, the, the benefits coming out of this revelation? Tell your faces, because I'm doing all the enthusiasm for you, okay? Now would be a good time to applaud. Okay, point number three goes on and says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Again, without knowing the context of where the letter was being written, this verse is a bit, a, a bit ethereal. Basically what was happening is these Jewish believers are being persecuted for abandoning Judaism. They're being persecuted for being part of a brand new cult called, well, I'm not sure if it'd been called Christianity yet, but followers of Jesus. And so there's extreme persecution and the writer of Hebrews is like, don't abandon this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He can be trusted to keep his word. Hold unswervingly, hold tightly without wavering to this hope. That's what he's reminding them. And then point number four, we shift now from the blessings to the responsibilities that come out of the revelation of being able to access the presence of God. Verse 24, he says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Again, your salvation is not just for you guys, it's to affect your whole community. 
So live a life of encouragement where we get to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And then point number five is the crescendo. It's been building to this. Verse 25, it says, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Look at that. The problem of believers not wanting to go to church is nothing new with this century. They were like, ah, you know, it's fine. You know, I can just do synagogue on my own at home. I've got an iPad, I can just tune in, it'll be great. He's like, no, don't neglect your meeting together, as some people do. He's, the author is saying, don't be one of those Christians who decides not to come to church, as some do, but with everything that's happening, make it a priority. Now, before I go on to my main point, it is interesting that though there's a crescendo leading up to point five, there's also some similarities. The author of Hebrews has deliberately laid this out with clear linear thinking and pointing out that not going to church is as foolish as not entering the presence of God. Not going to church is as foolish as giving up the hope that we have. Not going to church is as foolish as not motivating one another to acts of love or good works. And guess what? We discover that church is the perfect context for entering God's presence, for holding tightly to our hope, and for encouraging and motivating one another. You know, I've often heard an argument that goes along the lines of, I don't need to go to church the place. Because where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. And so, you know, sometimes <clears throat> I come home from church and scroll through Instagram, see a bunch of people saying, you know, they're out to breakfast and they're taking photos. This is my church. And I'm like, no, you're on a date. That's not church. <laughs> but they're convinced, oh no, I can do church on my own terms. It seems to me that often we like Jesus the Savior a whole lot more than we do Jesus the Lord. And that's a shame because his lordship is what leads us into splendor. Too often we get saved and then we're like, no, I'm good, thanks. I remember Jeff saying, Alan, most often people are willing to follow God up until his will contradicts their will. And that's the point where we're like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm all good. When we think like that, we're as far from good as we might possibly imagine. And there's a danger that this don't tell me what to do mentality that has crept into today's Christian culture is killing us softly. You see, he is the Lord of all. It's his job to lead and our job to follow. And he only ever leads us into goodness. To state that we know a better route or a better destination is both horribly arrogant and terribly foolish. Now, when you look at this diagram, which is really just a pictorial explanation of the collection of verses, you notice that there's a progression from left to right. But have you ever stopped to consider what happens if we reverse the process? What happens if we start going the other way? In disobedience, for example. 
So let's start with point five, work backwards and do the opposite of what Scripture tells us to do. You might be thinking, well, why would we ever want to do the opposite of what Scripture tells us to do? I don't know, but it seems to be an epidemic. (laughs) So let's start here. Point number five is, let's not neglect our meeting together. Well, you know, that's Old Testament. It really isn't. It's in the New Testament. Let's just pretend it is and we'll be fine. (laughs) So if if we do neglect our meeting together, If for whatever reason we think that verse doesn't apply to us, I don't know, it feels too religious. Well, the outworking of that is we stop going to church. And perhaps we don't even feel the problem with it because we're like, you know what? I'm just in this new season with the Lord where I just want to shake off the constraints of religiosity and church just feels super religious. And, you know, like I'm a child of grace and so I just got this freedom to explore things, yada, 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 yada. Okay? And so we're like that and we're like living there and we think it's great. Now, sometimes the reason we think it's great is because it takes us a long time to realize that we're not smarter than God. (laughs) This would be one of those times. Disobedience produces fruit. We often don't see it first. So we stop going to church. Point number two, or sorry, point number four, working backwards, verse 24 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Well, because we're no longer going to church, the first thing that happens is we're not around those who motivate us to acts of love and good works. So just think about it. We just worshiped our hearts and then Sarah gets up and well, even before Sarah gets up, Tiffany gets up and just encourages us. She literally does what's in Hebrews. Hey, you know, if there's areas of your heart that you just think like, God, where are you? Put them before him and offer them as a sacrifice of praise. And then Sarah gets up and encourages us. Oh, isn't it great to be together? And if you need a prophetic word, go get prophesied. If you weren't here today, you wouldn't have got that encouragement. What happens if you don't get encouragement is we tend to become less motivated. And when we become less motivated, we stop thinking of ways to motivate others And in my observation, what takes its place is typically criticism. Often of the church. We begin to grumble and complain or perhaps spiritual pride breaks in. We claim we have a new revelation or a new way of doing relationship with God. The bottom line is that instead of motivating and encouraging one another, we often end up criticizing others. Point number three says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. My observation is the fruit that's often produced at this stage is that instead of holding tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, we actually begin to question the hope that we once had. And because that hope now feels like an echo or a shadow, it's a gateway to believing the oldest question in the book. Did God really say? Instead of being confident of his promises, we begin to question his capabilities. Often when I've met people who are in this stage, I point out to them, it looks like you're having a crisis of faith. And they're like, no, I'm not having a crisis of faith. I'm merely deconstructing it. Instead of holding tightly without wavering, we're now majoring on wavering and questioning. 
Point number two on our descent into chaos <laughs> says that we have a sincere heart. But at this stage, instead of a sincere heart, we are double-minded. We're not trusting him because if we did, we'd be believing him, which would look like obeying him. From my observation, there's typically lots of confusion at this stage and well-meaning friends and families who reach in and reach out and say, hey, how are we doing? I haven't seen you at church. Usually that concern is received as control. And our encouragement is met with, ah, stop quoting scripture. Like somehow scripture is bad. You're gonna get cooties from, is that how you say it, Americans? Yep. When we're in this stage, we're confident we can figure it out. I just need time. I just need space. The trouble is we end up leaning more on our own understanding than on his. Which leads us to point number one, where we're supposed to go right into the presence of God, but before we know it, we've forgotten what it feels like. And we end up in orphanhood. Definition of an orphan is somebody who lives outside the Father's presence. Orphanhood is a place of deep, deep sorrow, deep loneliness. And because we're biologically engineered to belong, we often find others or recruit others who think like us and we build our own community out of an identity of rejection which further reinforces our isolation against the church. I think this downward cycle into Suckville is potentially one answer to my question. How do you have people that have spent years building the church together only for them to decide one day to distort the truth in order to draw people away? I believe there's more than that schematic up there, but I think it's certainly one answer. Told you it would get worse. (laughs) You know what's ironic is the whole of the New Testament, with the exception of the Gospels, is about church. The book of Acts describes the birth of the church. Revelation is letters to the church. In between, you'll find letters to church leaders, encouraging them to lead well and how to grow leaders. The bulk of Paul's writing is regarding the church and church conduct. And so if you remove yourself from the church, you end up removing yourself from the very thing the bulk of the New Testament concerns itself with. Let me read you one more passage. Would you, Al? Would you? Yes, I would. (laughs) This passage we've looked at many, many times. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Think about the savior we serve. Not only does he build a church, pay for the church, feed the church, care for the church. He gives gifts to the church. There's nobody like you, Lord. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, and the teachers. Now, have you ever wondered what they're there for? Well, they're there to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church. Paul says that the reason these gifts exist is to equip the church. Do you notice that phrase? Say, yes, Alan. 
to equip the church and to build up the people. Where? In the church. If you remove yourself from the church, then what happens is you won't be equipped to do God's work, nor will you be built up. According to Paul, and he knew a few things, that only happens in the church. Paul continues that the goal of building up, he says here, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature. Say mature. If you want maturity, you have to stay in the church. Some of you are not convinced. So let's keep reading because Paul, (laughs) anticipating a spirit of unbelief, contrasts verse 13 with verse 14. So let's read verse 13 so it's fresh in our mind. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's sin, that son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Who is Paul writing to here? The church is in Ephesus. The very place that he warned them, people from among you will stand up, they'll distort the truth and they will try and take people away. And he's saying the antidote in that is to stay in the church, believe what God has, mature so that you won't be tossed and blown around by every wind of new teaching. The antidote to not being influenced when people try and trick us with new sounding truth is to know the truth in the first place. Honestly, the number of conversations I've had with people in the last 10 years where I'm like, are you seriously suggesting that that's wisdom? See, people will argue, and they do. And they write Facebook posts, and Medium posts, and Twitter posts. And I love the block button on all of those features. People will argue and say, I don't need the church. I can subscribe to this podcast and that podcast, and I can read books by my favorite authors, and I can be equipped, and I can be built up. But the Bible says, no, you can't. If you try to achieve maturity outside of God's plan, you end up immature. And when you're immature, you're blown about by every wind of new teaching. You'll be influenced when people tell you lies that sound like the truth. And that is the problem I'm drilling into. There's a danger. I meet people all the time who sincerely, honestly, they're like, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to do in the South here, but hand on heart, you know, turn around, touch the ground, whatever it is, like whatever curses they invoke upon themselves. I swear on the grave of my, et cetera, et cetera. This is the truth. And I'm like, your moral compass is so messed up that you swear it's pointing north, but I'm promising you it isn't. Well, how do you know? Because I have the compass here. It's called the Bible and it describes your situation right now. But they believe what they think is truth because they have no discernment and they don't know it. You okay? Wait till Father's Day. Woo! (laughs) 
David Campbell, who's been here several times, has got this brilliant phrase. He says this. He says, if you only believe the parts of the Bible you do like, but you don't believe the parts of the Bible you don't like, you don't believe the Bible, you believe yourself. <laughs> Scripture itself has a very, very grave warning. It says this, do not merely read the word. Are you kidding me? I was taught to read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. <laughs> but here the scriptures and stuff, do not merely read the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. I meet people who've not experienced transformation, but they've collected information. And what they are, are experts at is arguing. They think they're arbiters or gatekeepers of truth. And I'm like, oh, I can't even step in the arena to talk to you because we're talking from two different points. Why am I getting so passionate about this? Because I don't want you and I don't want me in the very situation Scripture's warning us against. I know of people today without any sense of hyperbole in what I say next who are shipwrecking their lives. Once upon a time, godly, Bible-believing people, passionate, sold-out lovers of Jesus, who now are not sure the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. And that's me being generous with that description. Not sure if Jesus really is the Son of God. You know, is Jesus really the Son of God? Like it just, it sounds like a little restrictive. It's called the narrow way for a reason. What's next? You know, is the Prince of Darkness really bad or is he just misunderstood? <laughs> oh, you think it's funny, but listen, I spend my time trying to help Christians believe that the Bible is authoritative and you can trust it. I, I'm, right now I've spent an hour convincing people who are already in church not to leave church. <laughs> this is the level of insanity we're at. These people were pastors, missionaries, church planters. These people were sold out in devotion to Jesus. So how did they get to shipwreck? They stopped coming to church. The number one thing that all of them have in common is they stopped coming to church. I remember meeting with several of them saying, please don't do this. Please don't do this. Let me just tell you from my experience of what it looks like in five to 10 years. I'll get to what they told me in a moment. They stopped coming to church. They refused to be teachable and were influenced by lies that sounded like the truth and they embraced new teachings. Paul continues this in Ephesians 4. He says this in verse 15. Instead, as an alternative, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. When you remove yourself from the church, you stop growing and you become sick. Health and growth is only found in the church. It's God's design. Please don't think you're the exception. This will come as a huge shock to many of you who know me personally, but over the years, I've done my fair share of confrontation. 
And the saddest part for me is when I've gone to meet with people who've left the church or are planning on leaving the church and I've shared my concerns about what it ends up looking like, the usual answer I've received is, I'm fine. My two questions when I hear that response is, how do you know and by whose definition? See, in Revelation chapter three, verse 17, Jesus had to confront a church. By all accounts, this church was amazing. They were doing everything right. It's the church in Laodicea. And this is what he says to them. This is Jesus, meek and mild. He says to them, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Like they've taken, I'm fine and upgraded it by about five spots. I'm good. <laughs> Jesus, you don't have to come all the way and write a letter. We're good. Everything's fine. I'm totally rich. Don't need a thing. And this is what Jesus said to them. You don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But Alan, you say, well, that's someone in the church. Doesn't that nullify your point? No, no, here's the thing. I'm, uh, I'm not saying the church is perfect. It's run by broken people. But here's the thing. Revelation 3.22 says this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. If we're not in the churches, we won't hear or understand what he's saying in this hour. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, give us some good news, please. What's the antidote? The antidote is don't leave the church. Don't disobey scripture. Nobody ever improved their life by doing the complete opposite of what scripture instructs us. Look, I'm serious. Jesus didn't die a horrendous death on the cross so we could be picky about which parts of his teaching we want to follow. I'm not really that kind of a person, you know. But seriously, spend this week talking to the Lord. And you're like, seriously, you're not gonna wrap this up with a nice boat? No, that's what next week is for. I want you to spend this week uncomfortable, irritated, frustrated. What are your thoughts? What are the bits I haven't commented on? What are the, what are the areas of your heart that like felt like, I don't like this message. Are there church leaders that you need to forgive? If you've been at church for more than two times, the answer is yes. Like, what are the deficiencies you see? Start talking to the Lord about that. You're going out for lunch just now. Talk to your friends, your family. Like, ah, like I had a problem with this, I had a problem with that. D- dig into this. Next week, I'm going to take this topic away from kind of out there and the ethereal nature of like, hey, don't be doing this. I'm going to bring it right up close to us. I'm going to make it very personal to Gracer. I'm going to talk about the mistakes that we've made as church leaders in our journey to understanding what it means to be a church. We're going to talk about the ramifications of that. We're going to talk about why can I be so bold and authoritative saying I know what happens because I've spent 10 years trying to coach people out of what's happened and I'm just watching just history repeat itself. Trying to bring about a change. But for now, stand, let me bless you. Go enjoy your day. Think deeply, love graciously, enjoy your week. The church and all of its beautiful, complex issues are gonna be here next week for us to talk about. 
<clears throat> and we'll have some fun with that as well. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you that we today get to be part of your house, the foundation, the pillar of truth. Lord, we love that you've added us to the church. And Lord, forgive us, Lord, for when we've misunderstood, when we've maybe understood fine, but we just wanted to be stubborn. Lord, when we've been hurt, when we've allowed our offenses to give us permission to ignore your word. Lord, would you just bless us as a body today? Would you bless us individually? Would you bless us as families? And as we go today, Lord, would you trouble our hearts with a quest for greater revelation? We love you. We want to be all that you paid for us to be, both individually and collectively as a body here in Franklin, Tennessee. And so we bless every church around the world that's meeting today, Lord. We bless church leaders. We bless congregants, Lord. We bless people who currently says they've shipwrecked their faith, but who knows what you're going to do because you're so good at turning things around. Lord, you're so good. We think of our very own pastor, Pastor Jeff, who talks about how he took a hard left and left church hard. And now he's back and he's a leader and we bless the dollars on their vacation. And Lord, we call in prodigals. We call in wanderers. Lord, I thank you that you are so good and gracious and you're kind and your kindness leads us to repentance. And so we take today, we're excited, Lord. Would you bless our families? Would you bless our finances? Would you bless our community? In Jesus' name, amen.